Hello and welcome to the 361 Podcast Season 10, Episode 10. My name is Ben Smith from Wireless Worker. I'm Ewan from Mobile Industry Review. And I'm Ray Blunt from the All About Sites. As is now almost nearly traditional, it's our end of season Ask Us Anything special, so we're going to answer your questions, and at the end of the show you can find out who won the prizes from our best smartphone votes. So, without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome back, chaps. Woo-hoo. So we've made it. Yes, end of season, season ten. Come Blimey, on, can you imagine? And what's more impressive? It's more than a hundred episodes because we've done all kinds of bonus and extra series. It is now. I don't have the number in front of me, but it's oh, hundred and thirty something. It is. That yeah. is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. End of season ten, rocking. So if you've listened to hundred and thirty times, about half an hour. That's that's. I know impressive. a few people that have. Oh, I, I know. Yeah. Both listeners probably have now, so thank you very much. And given we're going into a season of lesson, it'll be time to renegotiate contracts. I'm pretty sure that Ben will require two packets of fruit pastels instead of one in future episodes. Exactly. I'm looking for the big trade up to the Haribo, to be honest now. I think the time has finally come. Excellent. What were we doing about recording studio? Well, this is true. I'm definitely going to want a comfier chair in mm-hmm. season 11 because, yeah. uh, you know, my backside isn't as finely honed as it used to be. I want Blanford to actually have a massage real time. Oh, yeah, you've been talking about this. Right. In the next season. But what we need, what we need, I need the listeners to really get behind us here. Yeah. And actually, you need the massager to get behind. Right well, through, exactly. Yeah. So what we're thinking is we should be trying out some new apps. And I, I did actually, as I think, of the week of an app. Haven't used it yet. And that's where you can book a massage by your phone and the therapist will come to your home, your office or whatever, and we'll deliver the massage there. I think it'd be really cool if during an episode of recording we ordered it. Yeah. I think that'd be wicked if, if the lady t- or, or the guy turns up yeah. and Blanford has to do the podcast. Yeah, if you just put the microphone under the um, yep, under the table where, where the yeah. where the gap is. Yeah, I mean it'd be a bit muffled. Yeah. But I think it'd be wicked, and I reckon it'd make a good and photo as well. Of course, the, the, the rules are with nobility. If you're not in the UK and you're not familiar with the mm. rules, these that you can't touch aristocrats. Uh, if you're looking them straight in the eye. But of course, as long as you don't actually look them in the face, you're all right to touch But I'm them. sure the company, I think it's just Massage. Let me get the, um, the app. Well, they, could yeah. probably, they could probably wear gloves, couldn't they? Yeah, it's just called Massage in the yeah. app store. Really good, yeah. Urban yeah. Massage. Sorry. In case any listeners are wondering, I'm not particularly desirous of this uh, potential uh, but be, service. But I'll be really clear, listeners. He says he's not particularly desirous, I think, subtly. And actually, I reckon he would love it. No. Just no. That's actually English euphemism for I'd love that, wouldn't it? No. Yeah. No. Anyway, Ray no, no. have you a thing of the week or any kind of news to share with us? Yes, I wanted to talk about something that was actually connected to mobile and not some horrific thing that you're trying to do to me. But that is, you've got to order it on the phone. That's the yeah. thing. It is a good So maybe task. you should have the massage. Anyway, I'll I want to talk that. about BPay. So this is something that's available in the UK from Barclays Bank. And effectively, all it's doing is putting a small credit card inside various things, including a sticker for the back of your phone, a wearable bracelet and a key fob, a little bit like a SIM card. And it's effectively a, a charge card. You top it up with money. You can do auto top up and then use it at any contactless payment point. I don't actually think the Barclays implementation is particularly slick. The units that they've got are better than the first generation, which they launched last year. But what it absolutely has convinced me of is having a payment method that's on your wrist for that tap and pay makes a lot of sense. As we talked about in the last episode, that may be a bit of a flash in the pan in one sense, and the, the main interest in mobile payments is still in apps. But being able to pop out and pay for a sandwich or get coffee without having to take your wallet with you or rather have it get out of your pocket, it makes sense. And so, you know, the whole wearables and payments space that we've talked about in the past for Apple Watch and the jawbone up with American Express, it's one that's worth keeping an eye on. 
Yep, loved paying for a transaction with my Apple Watch the other day. Just easy. Very nice. Boop. Yep, living in the future. Yeah. You, McLeod? Uh, what news uh, for you? My, my one is, Blanford uh, did introduce me to Amazon Prime now. Now, it's a separate app you've got to download, and it's a bit of irrelevant to me because I live in the countryside, away from everything. But in London... You don't live in the countryside. What? Okay, I don't get Amazon Prime now. You live, you live in a satellite town. In Hampshire, darling. Yes. Hampshire, darling. No, Prime now is only available in London, as far as we're concerned. As other cities are available, like, you know, American ones. But basically, if you live in central London, you can have a selection of Amazon products delivered to you within an hour. You've got to pay. And then was it within two hours, it's free. Yeah, and you have to be a, a Prime subscriber. I had my uh, first delivery the other day. It has to be over £20 worth altogether, but then they turn up effectively. It was a courier on a moped and handed me a brown bag that was branded Prime Now. And the reason I did it is I wanted to get a few items that I would have otherwise had to go out for the shop for. It was all available on Prime Now. The pricing actually slightly cheaper than it would have been in the shops. And I could use that time to do other useful things. And actually you're able to watch the delivery person arrive kind of on a map, so Uber style as he made his way across London. And I just think this stuff is going to change everything for people. I mean, I, I always, always, always loved Urban Fetch way back when in the first bit of the dot-com period where you can order stuff and have it delivered within an hour. This, I think, is going to get really, really exciting. It does change things when you've got that immediacy that you can either sit there at work saying, I, I need this right now, so maybe yeah. some kind of monitor cable or yeah. adapter headphones. or something you like know, that. I always, it really, really annoys me if I forgot my headphones. So something like that. Right, and you can order a, a 10 quid pair of headphones. You know, there is a value equation here that you you know need to be willing to potentially pay the extra, especially if you mm. go for the out option. But also it's knowing when it's going to arrive. So I can order something as I'm walking back from the office, yeah. you know, back to home and know that it will arrive about an hour later. You know, we can have a, a crate of uh, Foster's. I mean, that, that's just the generic brand they've got here. £10, there yeah. you go. Pack of 15, that could be here within an hour. God, I, re I, I really want some beers now in an See? hour's time. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that is going to be very, very cool. Really yeah, cool. so it's, it's a good one, worth watching. Ben, what about you, thing of the week? Yeah, uh, a little bit more mundane, really. I bought a new iPhone charger, which shouldn't be exciting. <laughs> I know, I know. Now, you remember a couple of episodes ago, I was raving about the Native Union jump cable, which was that. Uh, yeah, uh, I've, been, I've been looking at that in the yeah. travel sixes thing. And I, and I know it's just no point having a phone with you if it doesn't work charged up. And, and I know, you know, everyone will be saying, oh, you should get a phone with removable batteries. But no, they're nonsense. So long story short, the reason I like the jump cable was you could use it like a regular cable, but while you were using it, because it had a built battery in the middle, it kind of charged it up. And then just by chance, you always had a battery with you charged up. It was dead useful, but the battery was quite small and it only sort of partially charged up a phone. It's good, but actually what I wanted was something more substantial. And Mophie have released their Power Station X2 and X3. Mm. And the great thing is it looks like a business card case. It's got a lightning cable built in and you can also get a mini USB. But the great thing is it's got the cable built in, but it also works as a syncing cable. And so you can charge this thing up as you go. 3,000 milliamp hours. I'm always carrying it around with me. And it looks the part as well. It's a nice aluminium finish. And a lid. Is it only 3,000? That doesn't seem like a lot. That's one recharge, basically. It's one recharge of an iPhone, yeah. And you're now trying to order it on Prime now because he quite likes the look of it. Yeah. So not the most most exciting thing, but what I love is the fact that I don't have to think about charging them up. I have a bunch of other you know, portable batteries and things like that, and I carry them around with me, but they're never charged up because yeah. I have to remember to charge them. It's, it's really interesting. It's just like the wireless charging where it actually changes the way you, your habits for charging your phone and just makes it more convenient. Absolutely. Do you know, last night I became a member of me.com, mi.com. 
Xiaomi. Right. Oh, Xiaomi. Oh, again, I thought this was really. I thought this was some kind of you know <laughs> no. mission. Self aggrandizing. Go, go, go and have a look if you haven't. Words. If you haven't already, it's. Um, I did it in the iPad, and I was just thought, I wonder what um, Xiaomi have got. You can actually buy from the UK because you can buy from the UK now, right? Are we saying Xiaomi? I think it's show, Xiaomi. 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 Well, I'm Scottish Xiaomi. doesn't really matter. Does it? it's, it's better than saying Xiaomi, isn't it? That's true. As a UK customer, you can't buy phones or the TV or anything, but you can buy the power bank. So you can get a 10,000 milliamp power bank. That's, um, well, in this case, it's $13.99. Uh, you can get a 5,000 for $9.99. But they are charging you a bit for uh, delivery because of the You do have to pay for delivery, but uh, then I had a quick look at Amazon and find that you can actually get the same price. For get, cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. The other or thing that the delivery charge. I, I do want to just bring up that Xiaomi have done an interesting partnership. I believe it's in Singapore with Uber where you can actually order a Xiaomi Note 4 to be delivered via Uber and they just oh, have that, a certain number of branded Uber really things cool. going around. So it's sort of I would do that. And they've done it in the UK for By ice the, creams and things like you that. You can do that with buy a um, phone. You can do that what I noticed on the Amazon Prime now, you can actually buy phones. Ooh. The LG G3 is available, and the um, there's a Honor Holly at £89. And good phones like the Lumia 640XL as well. Hmm? Now, actually, that is a phone I might be interested in. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to look it up here. Uh, just actually, um, look, the, uh, think the things, We're move on. things of the week needs, needs to move on, but just quickly as well, um, I got on Uber here this evening, and it offered to link up to Spotify and play my own premium playlist. Not. Yeah, so if I got on Uber, and it said link the Uber app to spotify yeah. and your playlist will be played when you're in the car that's nice now, does, I, I wouldn't want to do that because i would bother the driver that's my problem well but you you're have british, terrible so. terrible taste in music though hardcore so. dance kind of but and if you're not british you don't care about bothering the driver there we go anyway yeah. should we move on what are we talking about this week we are talking about questions because it's the, the ask audience. us anything episode and we've been soliciting questions via the uh tweets and via voicemails and i believe we've got quite a few to get through ben we have we have we've got tons and tons of your questions thank you to everyone who sent them in all the various ways you can send them in and uh well look should we just crack on with them and uh, we'll go as quickly as we can okay so question one actually comes from Ilico ella long time friend of the show the man from digitize lbi who sorts us out with their venue here so mm. uh, no no accident that uh, his question gets to go first he says, what do the esteemed panel, so I think he means me, think <laughs> of the latest craze of splitting apps into separate functionality, e.g. Facebook and Messenger, Swarm and Foursquare, Sky Sports and Movies and Go? Is it good? Is it bad? Or is it due to company politics? I really think we're talking about Facebook and Facebook and Messenger. Messenger. I, yep. I don't think anything else is relevant. Foursquare and Swarm, I, I just don't think they register when you're talking at scale. I can see why Facebook's done it. I think it makes a lot of sense. It's really smart. It's almost seamless. I do get annoyed when I click on the chat icon by mistake and wonder, oh, what's this doing when it's popping something up? But it's very quick and, and as elegant, I think, as you can possibly be. I think that was sensible for Facebook. I don't really think it makes much sense for anybody else. Now, Rafe Blanford, the phrase app constellations has been banded around here and it makes me cringe, but what does it mean and why do we care? It's effectively the idea of having a family of apps. And I think with Constellation, the implicit suggestion is they are closely linked together and may exist within each other. And Facebook is the best example of that. But we're increasingly seeing a trend for deep linking, which is often talked about from web to app, but actually applies just as much from app to app as does the idea of extensions in iOS. And so there's been a certain number of technological developments that have made this a more practical proposition that you can share functionality between apps. I would say there are examples where it absolutely makes sense. Facebook, we've already sort of talked about, and ones where it's gone badly wrong. And actually the reaction to Foursquare and Swarm, I think, is an example of that. 
I think you can probably identify a couple of areas where it's sort of that it's justified. If you're a big enough brand that can justify having multiple apps on the phone, you are able to create, I think, a better user experience by having simpler, not necessarily single purpose, but more focused apps. But actually, the number of companies that really fit into that category are quite small. And it, you know, otherwise, you put all your efforts into getting people to download one app. And the reason I talk about this is kind of an app discovery issue. Can you get more people to find the right app if you... You know, narrow the focus down. And the other one is when you talk about audiences, can you appeal to a different set of people who might not otherwise download the app? And I think Sky is an example of this. When you think about there's a Sky Movies and a Sky Sports app, which is definitely kind of a marketing audience exercise. And then there's Sky Planner you know, or the Sky Plus app, which is about doing remote recording and getting Sky access Go. to your program guide. And Sky Go, very specific functionality and focus. And sort of it makes sense there. But there is a benefit in release cycles, so you and, can actually separate the and, release cycle out. And maintenance, absolutely. And I think constellations make a lot of sense, but you have to make sure there is a justification because there is a danger that you actually end up damaging your app family, as has happened to Foursquare. Well, for me, the, some of the examples that were cited in the failure camp, so there was Foursquare and Swarm, Dropbox and Carousel, Facebook and Messenger, which I don't think has been, it caused a lot of noise, so I don't think it was a failure, was actually there's a bit of honesty come into the process as well, which was those features that have been hived out of separate apps were not performing well and were not being widely used in the first place. And just because you've hidden it inside an app, you can't claim that your, let's say Dropbox, for example, that people were using the Dropbox picture gallery just because it was inside the Dropbox app that was being used. And so the idea of constellations isn't the thing that's failing. It's the fact that these pieces of functionality actually aren't being used because they're not really the core purpose of the apps. And therefore, spinning them out, A, gives you an opportunity to test it, and B, gives you an opportunity to find out a little bit more publicly, perhaps, because previously the only people who knew this were the companies who had their own analytics. Yeah. Uh, and it's that refinement. I mean, if you think about Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, you wouldn't imagine those as one app. You would very much have them as three separate apps. And so... The justification has to be there, but it's a really interesting one because it is a trend that has become popular as now there's a bit of a, a spring back against it. Okay, next question from at Joey Fallon. Again, long-time listener. Hi, Joey. Thanks for your question. Ewan McLeod, are mobile broadband overage charges the new SMS in terms of blatant mobile operators screwing their customers? Well, I think it's an excellent question. Hi there, Joseph. Now, I really, really didn't like, I disliked SMS and the way it was charged. That really used to annoy me a lot. So I do identify with Joey in this context. Luckily, I'm living in the United Kingdom where I'm simply using three. And as far as my mobile handset is concerned, I have unlimited data. Now, I do have to pay overage charges if I go out of my data bundle for my MiFi unit. And yes, that's it's slightly more expensive than, than normal, than, than buying in bulk, but it doesn't really bother me too much. However, in other countries... And in some cases with some UK operators, it is ridiculous. In the UK, I say, if you've got that problem, move to three or move to a different network or get, make sure you obsessively deal with your price plan and don't get ripped off by these guys because there is typically very good deals on most operators here in the UK. But internationally, yeah, it is a, a real problem, especially when the market is sewn up by two or three operators. Rafe, we're pretty lucky here to live in a place where data is pretty cheap to begin with. Um, yeah. If you were in North America, for example. Yeah, I mean, we're one of the most competitive marketplaces in the world as far yeah, as kind go of contracts. Us. Yeah, woohoo. Woo and as well as on prepaid pairs, you go as well. In the US, I think there's a twin issue of actually some contracts come with too little data 
and people aren't making rational decisions about that. And that's becoming more of a problem as people are starting to buy more online and over the phone. And if you haven't got a service or orientated operator who will advise you when you go in, that can be a problem. Or circumstances change. Yeah, or you just went for what you thought was a cheap contract and you thought, well, yeah. I just assume they sort me out with data. And it's kind of ridiculous that you can pay, you know, three or four times the amount for your second gigabyte of data. Yeah. And I think some of the US operators are particular villains here, but you also get that in other markets as well. It's typical of, you know, when you're on the kind of edge case, when you are going there, I think the operator sometimes finds it easier to you know, be unfair about this mm. because they'll get less complaints and, you know, Mr. Joe Average is, is quite happy. But yeah, just as SMS being charged at, you know, <laughs> I, I can't remember, it was thousands of pounds per megabyte yeah. was the figure that was used. And actually, that was unfair. Yeah, I'd agree. Same issue, just operators yeah, need to give people a fair deal. Next question, Matt Lacey's written in, uh, says hello to the team. Uh, hi, Matt. Hello. Um, Long email, and I'm going to try and summarise it, Matt. hope you don't mind. He was out last week playing football with some friends. Somebody got hurt and they needed to call an ambulance because of a medical emergency. Problem was that they were in a field, so they didn't have an address to give the ambulance crew over the phone. And they had to spend a long time whilst the ambulance was driving in their general direction, describing where they were, although it got sorted out in the end. Matt says, why isn't there a better arrangement for sorting out ways to pass on your location to emergency services, particularly when he had a mobile phone with a GPS unit in it? Excellent question. It is. And now I have to tread very carefully because this is a complicated <laughs> area and no doubt there are people listening to the show. Have you done research? I've done a little bit of research, but, you know, a little information is quite a dangerous thing. So There's mm. a reason we're letting Ben answer this yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Well, so first up, why does this matter? Well, in the UK, there's 22 million calls to 999 or, you know, the emergency mm. services here. And 911. 911 or, or 112 in some parts of Europe. But that's 60,000 calls a day and they reckon that each call that comes without precise location data requires about another 30 seconds to try and then diagnose where somebody actually is. And that can make calls last several minutes and it's a big cause of concern. Now, the rules and the regulations about this vary all over. And I'm just going to talk about the UK for the moment because things are very different in the United States. But for quite some time, if you called up from a fixed line phone, the companies either had to supply the billing address of that phone or they had to give it to the emergency services on request within a few minutes. And surprisingly enough, that still in some cases is done manually on request. But wow. certainly British Telecom, who you know, obviously were the original government monopoly and still operate the majority of the phone lines, do that automatically now. But if you're on a mobile, of course, there's no point giving the billing address. That's no use to you because the phone's almost certainly not there. So what they do is that the mobile companies, by default, send over the location of the cell tower and the area of coverage that it gives that you're attached to. And now, it's automatic. This, and this is, this is automatic. In the United Kingdom. In the, in the United mm-hmm. Kingdom, that's automatic. And so, for example, the Metropolitan Police, for example, their call centre solution actually shows like a, an A to Z map, and that would be the, the low-level detailed map of London with that area plotted over it. And then that at least means the operator can ask some intelligent questions about, you know, what street are you near the, this thing or that thing. But presumably, Ben, that's actually a problem in rural areas because the cell size is significantly bigger. You might not even be on a street. You might be in a field somewhere. And so how do you solve that problem? Well, it's a timely question, and there is some European Union legislation coming through that says effectively that countries are going to need to solve that problem, but it doesn't tell them how. The one that I would suggest that comes up most recently is British Telecom, the operator EE, who 
they've just acquired, and HTC have been working together. They're building a system called AML, Advanced Mobile Location. Effectively, what this does is it puts a little application in the handset, and when you dial the emergency services number, the handset gets a GPS location and texts it to the emergency oh, services, smart. and then the emergency services can join that text message up with the telephone call that you're making at the time, and they can see that GPS location. Now, that's a standard that is implemented, and it will, if you have an HTC phone on EE, that service will work today. And it uses, the fact, cool. it uses the fact that in the UK, we have a facility whereby you can already text message the emergency services if you want to. It's primarily done for people who are deaf, but it's also useful in times when perhaps there isn't enough phone reception to make a call. However, there are a bunch of other services, and this is being tackled in different ways in the US as well. But all of them are effectively attempting to deal with the fact that what you need is very precise location. And using the GPS, within about 30 seconds, they can get a location that is accurate down to about half a football field, which of course, in Matt's case, would have been absolutely right. So I think this is a classic example of when the technology and the development of devices hasn't kind of kept up with the infrastructure of emergency services. And we're seeing the same thing actually with cars and eCall. Exactly. It's recently gone through the EU Commission, whereby all cars will have to have a GPS and a SIM card in them. So if it crashes, it will automatically notify the emergency services. That's easier to do because it's kind of a fresh slate. When you've got all these mobile phones, diversity of operators, it's been harder. But I think to answer Matt's question is, it is going to improve, but it probably won't be overnight. Yeah, Ofcom have put out some consultation on this. That's the regulator in the UK, and they're they're still describing it in terms of what they'd like to achieve. You know, they want to get location data from the handset, and they're still looking at ways, and AML is one way. But clearly, yeah, there's a lot more to do. And certainly, the thing that might be easiest to do right here, right now, is if you're in the UK, is register for the 999 SMS service, which you must do in advance. So why not register today? And then if you encounter something like that, you could make a call and then follow up by texting in perhaps uh, you know the coordinates that you got off Google Maps or, yeah. or some other thing. Just um, a quick little bit of trivia for you. Oh, yeah. 999 services or at least you know short code in access to emergency services, only invented by the British in 1937. Well, thank you, you for that, Ben. There you go, a little fact set for you. Short code, oh, you mean 999. Why was it 999 and not 111? So you couldn't accidentally dial it on a rotary telephone. Oh, there we go. It was the hardest one to accidentally dial. All right. And uh, obviously then different places, uh, as they adopted it, 112 and 911, and you know, depending on you know, regional variations. Very interesting. Anyways, uh, Matt, that was a very partial answer to a very complex question because there's lots more to do. We might come back to that one because I've got an expert lined up to give me some more answers, but not available for today. Okay, let's move on. What's um, the next one? Ray Flanford, uh, again, long-term listener whose name I always murder, so many apologies. O. Carleong says, Ray Flanford, will Microsoft succeed with Windows 10 in the mobile OS war? Does Microsoft need that flagship mobile? So I'm pretty sure we need an entire episode on this one, so I'm going to try and give that we a certainly brief, don't. brief no, we're Yeah, uh, <laughs> We're actually just days away now from the launch of Windows 10 and Windows Mobile 10 is coming later in the year. I think the context of this question is that big launch and then the fact that Microsoft has just announced a whole bunch of job losses and a write-down on the Nokia devices and services acquisition. To me, that's actually a rescaling of the business to reflect the reality of where they've been in the last year. Those are some long words that mean it's not going well. Rescaling. And I think, yes, it is a tacit admission that things haven't gone well. And I actually think it means that Microsoft have kind of accepted that they are going to play a role as the third ecosystem, which I think is absolutely a healthy thing. But it's going to be 
you know, very much behind iOS and Android. As part of that, yes, a, a flagship device is absolutely essential. And it's Saturn Adela, Microsoft CEO, who talked about it rather than being, running a separate mobile phone business, which that ship has already sailed. It's what Nokia are trying to do. It's not working now. They want to be part of the wider Windows ecosystem, which no one really knows what he means by that. He talks about continuum and having this continuous experience between mobile and desktop. But what I think you can say is Windows 10, more than any other operating system, and I mean that in both the desktop and mobile terms, is a mobile first one. A lot of Windows 10 is inspired by kind of the mobile first, cloud first philosophy. And so it's going to depend how things evolve in the next few years. But, you know, is it going to win or succeed with the mobile OS? Well, I think it very much depends on your definition. It's a deal done, though. I don't think it will be a direct competitor to iOS and Android, as people have kind of expected it to get to, you know, 30% market share. But that doesn't mean it can't be very relevant and actually very successful. But I do feel that's a question we can probably better address once we've seen Windows 10 mobile launch and once we had a chance to play with it and maybe had a chance to think about it for a full episode. So I'm going to put a pitch in for season 11. I think I can better address it by saying, no, it's failed. Okay, it's moving swiftly Next on. question, Ashley, Ashley Hendrick. Not just because you're wearing glasses. <laughs> Ashley, <laughs> Ashley Hendrick has written in to contact at 361podcast.com. It says, hi, Ewan, which Hello. is nice. Which oh, is right. nice. Okay, yes, yeah. I feel rejected. So I'm going to paraphrase. He or she? I think he. He? Okay, yeah. right. So he says, I recall you mentioned a SIM that replicates your mobile phone number. He couldn't find it. He's traveling to Malaysia. And actually, he would have gone by the time uh, you hear this. Mm. And he's looking for a temporary SIM that lets him keep the same mobile number and have data while he's abroad. And he was asking, what was it and what should he do? And, well, Ashley's already traveled, so I emailed Ashley back with a quick answer when we got this. Because, you know, hey, if you've got a question, you email the team, you get a good quality of service. Um, Now, I think probably Ashley was probably thinking of TruePhone which we talked yes. about. There's also services like Max Roam. And Rafe, any other of those roaming SIM services that we should call out that give you a single number in multiple geographies? Uh, it be things like Roam Line as well, who are actually uh, closing down. But there are, I think, a couple of them rebadged from big operators. KPN did one and one of the Swiss operators. But actually the trick is to getting those multiple numbers, which really the specialists like uh, TruePhone are very definitely best for. And so we had a quick look, and of course um, TruePhone do operate in Malaysia, but only for their business package. Mm-hmm. And the simple answer is that if you were talking about Australia or USA or some of the large the, the supported countries, some basically. of the large uh, some of the large European countries, then you would have a bunch of options. But for countries, particularly from travel from the UK, where it's less common, then no, they're not supported. In fact, actually. To be honest, you'd be better suited with products from those geographies because, of course, in Singapore and Australia, you can buy products that allow regular roaming to mm. Malaysia because yeah. they are nearby. But if you're traveling from the UK, as we know you are, no, those services aren't available. To be honest, most of them are tailored to the business market anyway and have price tags to match, particularly for data services, which are the really hard part of roaming. The recommendation still is, particularly for countries like Malaysia, where you have a relatively good coverage of people speaking English, go and buy a local SIM. Yeah. But if you're going to the US or you need it as a business service, TruePhone would yeah. be one option to look at. I think the other thing to say here would be getting a local SIM and wanting to keep your number and you're going to be there for any length of time, consider a dual SIM phone because you can pick them up quite cheaply now and it's one way to kind of keep your number and still have the benefits of local data 
Rafe Blanford at TK Boxer has written in and says, what's your gut feeling about Nokia doing phones again? Will they be Android? How will they market them? You've got 30 seconds to answer this. Yes, they're absolutely going to do phones again. Uh, yes, they'll almost certainly be Android. They came up with a statement recently talking about how the fact that under the terms of the deal with Microsoft, that can't happen until Q4 2016, I believe it is. They're not going to market them themselves. They're going to kind of license their brand. They're going to also do some of the design work but those who are licensing it are expected to do all the distribution and marketing work, so they won't be doing marketing themselves. Sounds like Nokia is just going to let anybody slap a Nokia logo on any old piece of rubbish uh, just to exploit the brand for the final few quid. I think that's a slightly cynical way of looking at it, and they have made it quite clear that it's only going to be their own design, so they're actually licensing both their brand and design expertise. Okay, we shall see. We'll see, though, yeah. How much design expertise does the remaining bit of Nokia actually have? There's quite a bit still there. I think you can see the evidence from that in the N1 tablet that they announced uh, last year. The one that looks just like an iPad. The one that looks just like an iPad, yeah. Fair enough. No, yeah. And great. actually they're uh, kind of... Photocopiers ad- in uh, Helsinki are working fine. Though. Their advanced uh, <laughs> advanced technologies group has a lot of very smart people working for it in R&D labs and there is uh, still very definitely a design component in there. But make no mistake, it's a shadow of what device and services was. So it's going to be much smaller and very specific. Blanford, you'll be first in line then. And actually, the thing to look out for next, which will have probably been announced by the time we talk about this, is a, a VR device from Nokia. Oh, there we go. Yeah, because it's a shame because impressive people doing smart stuff that probably deserve better than absolutely licensed hardware. Okay, uh, moving on because we are super, super tight for time. Danny at Danny2XLL says, what's the long-term effect of 24-month contracts? Does it slow down phone sales? We had a bit of chat about this before mm. the episode and we think probably... It might have done, but certainly in the UK, 24-month contracts have been around forever, and the win was only once. Because when you persuaded people to move from 12 to 24-month contracts, you or persuade, 18 to 20, yeah. or 18 to 24-month contracts, you persuaded people potentially to buy more expensive phones because you could subsidise handsets over a longer period of time, and you could potentially sell cheaper handsets and make more of a margin on those ones. But you only get that one time. I think all of the operators, for the most part, have taken that hit quite a long time ago now. And whilst it has slowed down the cycle, that's a long-established pattern. And actually, as Rafe, you were pointing out to me, people are now frustrated with it and actually looking to buy themselves out of those contracts. Yeah, I think if anything, what it's led to is a a rise in SIM-free sales, as people have said, I want to replace my phone inside the contract period. And they can either buy it outright or just they will buy another phone. And sometimes they'll seek to sell their existing one. I think it's made people more wary of those long-term contracts. I don't think there's any evidence that people are spending more on phones. They're potentially just buying more expensive devices over longer periods. I think that's right. And if anything, it's sort of come to the rise of these unbundled contracts. And so the pricing is a bit clear. And if that's kind of been pushed to the front by this two-year time frame. Because ultimately, although it is nearly a necessity, the amount most people can afford to spend on a phone contract is the same this year as it will be next year. And so it doesn't really change depending on the duration of the contract. Okay, let's move on. So we have an audio question from somebody who phoned in to the voicemail service. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, if you ever want to talk to us, you can go to 361podcast.com slash contact and you can leave us a voicemail there, as Sergio did. Hello, this is Sergio from uh, Digital LBI. I wanted you guys to discuss what is going to happen next with Spatsbook because we love it as uh, a sort of intermediate step between uh, web and uh, full apps. And also, not only what is happening next there, but what is going to then happen in the uh, Android Google space to mirror and match that kind of experience. Thank you very much. 
So the question there was Passbook. And of course, the key thing there with Passbook, Rafe, is that that is like an interfaceless app, isn't it? You know, it's kind of a fixed, no interface app. And uh, Android doesn't have Passbook. Sad for them. No, it doesn't. And I mean, Google Wallet <laughs> could be talked about as a similar thing. Google that, Now, perhaps? That's only in the US. Yeah. But yeah, I think Google Now is actually the thing. And I think what we have to think about here is the way that Passbook on both iOS and Android will be conflated into these kind of system level or platform level interfaceless or appless apps. And the idea is that more will exist at the platform level. And we're kind of already seeing this with Apple Pay, for example. That's making my head hurt. So let's just stop a little bit and explain. So this is the idea that you can have notifications and potentially some very basic interaction, but it's all done through screens that the OS displays and you don't build it yourself. That's right. So it might be in the notification screen. It might be in the lock screen, even on the home screen, you know, Windows Phone has its live tiles. Is this like a modern day equivalent of kind of apps that operated by SMS where you would sort of, you know, respond backwards and forwards and and you could have an interaction with a service, but with that service never actually built a UI other than one that already existed on the phone? Yeah, I think that's actually a good equivalent to that. Thank you very much. The thing I would say, though, is most of them will have an app sitting underneath them, and it's kind of apps becoming platforms almost in their own right, but they will take advantage of standardized functionality on the phone to deliver most of their interaction experience with like their Passbook. consumers. Like Passbook. And actually, to do the most sophisticated Passbook stuff, you kind of do need to be part of an app rather than just sort of installed off the web. But it is also kind of tying in with this idea that the boundary between web and apps becomes more invisible as you deep linking all these platform level interactions. And so it's a really great question because I think it's going to become much more common to interact with services. And it's a potential answer to not everyone wanting to download every single app or at least sort of how you discover these services, how you get in front of them attention. Because ultimately, at the moment, you actually have to make an active decision to start an app. And we always talk about the importance of intelligence on the phone and a kind of artificial intelligence. And this is probably the most sensible way to present it. Now, I think at the same time, we will see Passport continue to develop in the context of the kind of the mobile wallet. And, you know, we've talked about how you can see your latest transactions come through on Apple Pay. And I think that makes sense for Passbook. And I expect Apple to kind of evolve this and I expect Google to do it. But will they both end up sitting in Siri or Google now? I think that's an interesting evolutionary path to think about. Ewan, is Passbook and interfaceless apps and stuff like that, is that really between apps and the web? I thought that was like an improvement on apps. I didn't see any relationship or intermediate step. Does he mean in the context that it's programmable a la like a web page using the, the type similar types of code? It's a similar concept. Similar complexity. Yeah, well, well, well similar ease of use in that you can deploy a Passbook app as Blanford's done actually uh, here at Digitas LBI. You can actually deploy it very, very quickly yeah. with you know limited testing requirements. It's really, really quick to get stuff yeah. out. I, so I'd, I'd think of that as an organization, if you're looking to try and do something, you can actually get a Passbook app so or a Passbook facility out very quickly. That, that's right. I think it's a barrier to entry thing here. Yeah. I mean, if you think about Passbook, usually done web technology, and certainly on the back end, it's cloud services. But if you think about things like Google Now, Cortana, and Siri, they're all going to be marked up in web pages with metadata or potentially mining your email. And so it is that sort of space between app and web, which has previously been a very distinct division, but now is becoming increasingly blurred. And we won't think about an app presentation there and a web presentation there 
there will be a, an entire continuum. And I think that bit sitting in the middle gets very interesting, particularly when we think about glanceable or very short-term interactions lasting just a few seconds. And to me, that's a way to kind of cope with the fact that your phone has to do more because it's you know, becoming an even more important part of your life. Quite how this will evolve and work out, you know, it's hard to talk about. It'll be a great one to actually dedicate an episode to, I think. You're, you're all about planning season 11 in the end of season 10, I am, isn't it? Yes. Very impressive. Yeah. Okay, okay next question coming from Jim Edwards. Jim's business deals with uh, audiovisual and smartphone connectivity. Interesting. Long email, Jim. I'm going to quickly summarise it. Basically, one of Jim's contacts was arguing that Apple's support for USB Type-C and their, the fact that they put a lot of money into developing it is a sign that they are trying to dominate the standard and that they keep trying to launch new proprietary standards basically as a money-making scheme. And why didn't they just use Lightning, which was already a cable standard that looks a bit similar and they already had. Apple are evil and are trying to make money out of people by deliberately switching standards. Go. Right. right. Well, yes, Apple do like making money out of people. And I think when they swapped to Lightning, I, I did a calculation that how many iPhones have been sold and how many people had to go and buy a little, you know, $25 adapter or whatever it was. And it was billions that Apple were making and did make from that change of standard. But I actually do think their heart is in the right place in this context. I don't think they were supporting USB Type-C because they have some overarching intent to try and make a load of money. I, I think they make far more money from selling an iPhone than they do uh, a small cable. Actually, that's not quite accurate sometimes when you look at what they're doing with the bracelets, actually. Was it $3 and they sell it to you for 49 Anyway, in this context, I think it was Apple simply making sure the standard got off and running and started moving. What's your view, guys? Yeah, USB Type-C it is a common international standard now. Apple might have funded it. They funded it because they needed it. If you're going to pay a thousand, it's just more convenient of the industry running with you. If you're going to pay a thousand pounds for a MacBook or uh, any Apple hardware, to be honest, you've already marked yourself out as someone who's going to pay a premium for a premium experience. And if Apple needs to swap all your cables and accessories to give you that premium experience, it's just a few quid more. They do. Yeah, yeah they'll do it because because it's, it's far more important. It's how we Apple users have come to be. I think you were pointing out earlier, Ben, that you can actually run other things on top of USB Type C, and so Apple might still have cables that are specific to Apple just using the standard connector. And that actually makes sense because from a regulatory point of view, they're going to probably get to the point where they are obliged to use a standard connector. Yes. Certainly the EU has done that. And you know, by investing in USB Type-C, they get to have exactly what they want that serves their purpose. And it's very similar actually to what happened with the Nano SIM format. Yeah, well, I think if Apple had developed Lightning 2 and kind of embedded proprietary stuff, then I'd be saying, oh, yes, naughty. Of course, the other thing as well is, yeah, we, as you Rafe said, we get fixated on the standard being the physical cable. And oftentimes the standard is really the data that runs over the cable. Exactly. And you yeah. could change the physical format like Thunderbolt over USB-C. Hmm. But um, uh, these Apple conspiracy theories are boring, aren't they? Don't worry, Jim. Thanks for question, though. Yeah, no, but uh, you're right, Jim, and, and you may strong. There we go. There you go. Okay, final Defined. question, and this is a chunky one, you and McLeod, so gird yourself up, ready to go. Tim Green, last week's special guest, we were chatting to him as he left the studio, and he left us a corker. So he said, what is going to be the next big acquisition in mobile? Go. Right, I would love it to be an operator or a series of operators. I'd love some big things to happen just to kind of sort that industry up. I would love to wake up one morning and have... You know, Google acquires Vodafone Group or something like that. Just let's just move <laughs> this stuff forward now, right? They are dumb pipes. Can we just get on with it? I'd like it to be the other way around. Vodafone buys Google. No, I'd like one of the newer brands. So I'd like, let's say, a Twitter or a Facebook or somebody yeah. to go, you know, dramatically sideways into buying out some of the old 
you know, an operator or something like yeah. that. You know, can you imagine what would happen if, um, let's say, Facebook bought Verizon? Or Come on, like that. I mean, which they could easily do. Well, I think the the, the thing is, or Amazon, what I mean, sorry, Amazon or Apple, what could Apple do with its hundreds of billions? Okay, so that's the kind of wish list, and I think that's that's us probably just looking for troublemaking, loving the idea of all these kind of you know sort of grey men in suits, you know, kind of suddenly being acquired by people with beards and t-shirts. <laughs> uh, but over to Rafe Blanford for a, almost certainly a far more sensible answer. Does it involve sensible answer? Well, there's, a, there's an easy answer here in that every big tech acquisition will have a mobile component because mobile is going to become the dominant way. Boring. Come on, yeah. that's a real answer. Yes, come uh, on. So there's several rumoured at the moment. The one that may well have happened by the time this recording goes out is that the German auto manufacturers are going to buy the here Maps division off Nokia. I thought that was almost a done deal. Isn't it's it? almost a done deal, but it hasn't actually been uh, formally announced. It looks like it's going to be about two billion or so dollars, uh, which is a massive uh, reduction from the seven point one billion that uh, Nokia paid from it when they bought Navtech. If I was going to look at anything else, I think the ones to keep an eye out for are the uh, Internet of Things and the sort of wearable space. So I wouldn't be surprised to see someone try and pick up something like Fitbit or yeah. Jawbone. They must so that, be targets. To add to that kind of, because they want to collect more data. So we'll see a return of the hardware acquisitions. And actually that whole space is ripe for consolidation as well. Also, we, earlier in the season, we covered off virtual reality and augmented reality. Mm. There's a lot of smaller players in that space doing clever things with hardware. And it seems almost inevitable that Google and the likes of Google will hoover them up as they try and compete. It, it is an interesting question, though, because I think actually startups now have to work a lot harder to be acquired, and particularly when you think about the unicorns, the ones that are worth more than a billion dollars. You know, There's been a lot of talk about those failing. But actually, it always used to be you did a startup to kind of be purchased, you know, the whole flip meat idea. But now I think you actually have to have a genuinely original idea and then work on it a bit in order to be acquired. And so as a result, the mergers and acquisitions have become more interesting because we're actually seeing the big guys develop projects internally themselves rather than going out and acquiring people because actually the cost is not necessarily in building an audience because you can do that so easily now through a downloadable app and through mobile. The value is actually in the people themselves. And so building up a team that can do stuff is probably as valuable, which is why we see so much acquihire. So um, it's an interesting question because, you know, things like Shazam and whatever potential targets as well, I suppose, Will someone buy Lyft in order to compete with Uber, for example? Not universally true of what we just said, but it also struck me how many hardware companies we mentioned just then. And I was also thinking of GoPro surely has to get snapped up by somebody as as the basis for a video sharing platform. And their recent integration with drones and YouTube suggests moves afoot there. But um, it's really interesting now how much the combination of hardware and software is the thing. It used to be a case that you made software for the web, didn't you? And that, that would get you you know, sort of a big acquisition. And now there's a far more hardware in the mix, perhaps just writing the ship a little bit in terms of a, an overemphasis on only the software experience. I think that's right. And the other value seems to come from brand as well. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the traditional mobile phone manufacturers being bought by one of the Chinese upstarts in order to acquire a Western-friendly brand. And sort of people have talked about HTC being acquired by the likes of, it wouldn't be Xiaomi, but it could be ZTE or Huawei in order to answer that. And I think, again, there's a possibility for consolidation there. But you're right, the most interesting stuff is actually, can you combine software and service together in clever ways that creates additional value? I like it when the market moves, you know, in a day. Yeah. Headline comes out, bang, everything's different. And it's always the one that you least expect that surprises you most. You know, 
they'll always be the big industry ones that consolidate. You know, Microsoft, the rumors around buying uh, Salesforce a while back is probably not going to happen. But you're right, those market moving scales, it does feel like we've had a lot of them. And what will be the next Instagram or the next WhatsApp purchase? I'm absolutely sure that uh, Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Amazon's checkbook is still very much open for the right person, the right company. Okay, so that is nearly the end of the show and nearly the end of the season. But of course, we have one more job left to do. All season, we've been inviting you to write in and let us know what you think the best smartphone on the market is. And thanks to our friends at tigermobiles.com, you could win that smartphone. And also, we have two printer devices for the busy business people. Um, Thank you, Landronics. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to Landronics. And now, we have a problem here, of course, because we've had to record this episode in advance and we wanted to give you the maximum amount of time to send your votes in. So we'll do something very clever now. We're going to cut over to our future selves. Do you have to put any VR glasses on for this or anything? No, just listen with your ears. Oh, hello, future Rafe. Hello, future Rafe. Hello, future Ben. Oh, you've lost some weight. Your hair looks nice. Right, hello from the future. I'm here with Rafe Blanford. Hello, everybody. We're going to do the big prize draw now at the end of very season exciting. 10. It is very exciting. So, Rafe Blanford, I have the random number generator. You have the big list. So let's crack on then. And thanks to random.org, our random number generator, the first one is number 18. So who's number 18? The big winner is, drumroll, Damien Brown. Congratulations, Damien. And what did he vote for? Well, it's a bit disappointing this. He voted for an iPhone 6, which I think was one of our most popular choices. Yep. Okay, Ref Blanford, next random number for the first of the Landtronics printers, and that is number five. And number five, that's nice and easy to find. Congratulations, Mark Grant. Grant, and finally, to win the second of the Landtronics printers, that is 120. And that winner is Ian Barton. Congratulations, Ian. We got a nice spread there. We did have some votes for some Lumias. We had some interesting ones. My favourite was the vote for the Lumia 640XL, which I thought was uh, very moderate. Yeah, that's the kind of listener that we'd like to have. Exactly. So uh, we've got to say a big thank you to TigerMobiles.com and the guys from Landtronics for supplying our prizes and sponsoring Season 10. Damien, Ian and Mark, we will be in touch about your prizes. Congratulations, guys. Back to you in the podcast in the past. And, uh, well, congratulations to those winners. And thank you to everyone who took part. Really appreciated all your submissions yes. and uh, particularly enjoyed uh, reading the people who wrote in to explain why they've made their choices. Uh, and, uh, yeah, well, we will um, keep writing to you via the newsletter and we'll try and think of something exciting to do for Season 11 as well. Mm-hmm. And with that, guys, we have to draw the episode to a close. Thank you very much. Yeah, and please, listeners, if you do want to hear Blanford getting a massage live on the show... I'd like to hear from you. Okay, well, actually, that is something you can do. So you can find us at 361podcast. You can email us through that website. You can find us at 361podcast on Twitter, or we are on Facebook, but don't encourage them. If you have any feedback about Season 10 or any stuff you'd like to see in Season 11, and several people have written in, and we're too short for time to cover them, particularly Andy Hagen. Thank you very much, Andy. Uh, We've got your suggestion in front of us for stuff we ought to do in Season 11. We are reading it now, planning it, and we will be back in a few weeks with Season 11. So... uh, let us know what you'd like to see. And I think we can exclusively reveal that there will be another challenge set in season 11. We just don't quite know what it is yet. Yeah, and we still have to make up the weird rules. Exactly. So much negotiation and late night meetings and pizza to be had. As ever, editorial assistance this week has been provided by Emma Krauss, research this season by Roland Banks. This podcast was edited by Mark Cotton of audiorangler.co.uk. Our recording venue is provided by DHS LBI. We thank all of those people. We will be back very soon with season 11. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. <laughs> 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can comment, subscribe, and catch up with previous episodes at 361podcast.com. If you're an iTunes user, we'd be jolly grateful for a five-star review. There's a link and pictures of how to rate the show at 361podcast.com slash rate. Each review makes it lots easier for new listeners to find us. 